Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Thank you to everyone for all the support over the last three months. We now have 10,000 Facebook followers, and we might finish this month with 2,500 downloads in August alone. Thank you to everyone for listening and spreading the word about the podcast. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The late 1800s was a time of war around the world. The U.S. was involved in several conflicts, both at home and around the world. Most of the conflict revolved around its war with Spain and the Caribbean and the Philippines, but efforts had also been made to prevent war in areas such as Korea. Fifteen years before the Spanish-American War, the U.S. had brokered a treaty between Korea and Japan that for a time kept peace in the region and established a military and trade alliance with Korea. Part of the treaty allowed for Korean citizens to emigrate from their home country to Hawaii, and in the early 1900s, many of those families furthered the immigration by moving to Los Angeles. Without a strong grasp of the English language, the families settled together in an area that was walking distance from Little Tokyo and Chinatown, and as time passed, their numbers and area of occupation within the city grew. As the 1960s arrived, an economic downturn hit LA, and a mass exodus of white business owners occurred. Sections of the cities that were occupied primarily by black residents suddenly had a plethora of cheap, available businesses to purchase and Korean business owners seized the opportunity to buy as many shops, gas stations, and restaurants as they could. Over the next couple of decades, tensions between black residents and Korean business owners steadily deteriorated. Black residents accused the Korean business owners of running the few black-owned businesses into the ground by price cutting, and then when it was only Korean-owned businesses left, they started price gouging the impoverished citizens. Most of the black residents lacked the transportation options to travel any distance for shopping and were forced to pay the higher prices charged by the Korean-owned stores. Korean store owners had a strong distrust for the black customers and often accused them of stealing from them. There was a language barrier that existed as a lot of the Korean owners spoke limited or hard to understand English, which compounded the issue. Tensions were at a boiling point between the communities when the unfortunate shooting of a 15-year-old black customer at a Korean liquor store became one of the many sparks that set off the 1992 LA riots. This is the story of Latasha Harlins and the 1992 LA riots. Latasha Harlins was born on New Year's Day in 1976 in East St. Louis. Her parents were Crystal Harlins and Sylvester Acoff Sr. She was the oldest of three children in the family, and after the birth of her younger sister, the family moved from Illinois to Los Angeles in 1981. Sylvester got a job in a steel foundry while her mother worked part-time in a local bar. It was said that her parents had a rocky relationship and that her father was abusive to her mother in front of the children. The marriage fell apart in 1983, and two years later, her mother was fatally shot by her father's new girlfriend. 
The terrible crime essentially orphaned the children, and they were placed into the care of their maternal grandmother, Ruth Harlins. The new family stayed in Los Angeles, and Latasha was both an excellent student and a gifted athlete. She ran track in middle school and had dreams of playing basketball in high school and eventually becoming a lawyer. To make friends, Latasha was known around the neighborhood for being the big sister to many different children, and she was tough enough to hang with some of the older boys who ran the neighborhood. Saturday, March 16, 1991, was a fateful day for Latasha and all of Los Angeles. Around 10 a.m., Latasha walked into Empire Liquor with plans to purchase a $1.79 bottle of orange juice. There are two very different versions of the events that day. One is offered by Soon Jadu, the female Korean owner of the store. Her husband, Billy Hong Ki-do, normally operated the family store, but he was resting that morning in the family van that was parked outside. Their son also helped run the store, but was not there that day, and let this left just soon behind the counter. And I did read somewhere that this family actually owned two stores, so it's likely that normally the husband, Billy, and their would run one store and their son would run the other store and it just happened this day that it was 10 o'clock in the morning uh, maybe billy had had to close down the other store late at night or something and he was just resting on this on this saturday morning obviously friday nights are usually pretty busy at liquor stores so it's very possible uh, he had a late night the night before or had to do something had to restock the store or something and it didn't get into that but basically uh, Billy's resting in the van outside and Soon is running the store by herself. According to Soon, Latasha walked into the store wearing a backpack. She grabbed a bottle of orange juice and put it into her backpack. Due to issues with juvenile shoplifters, Soon assumed Latasha was trying to steal the OJ and she confronted the teenager at the cash register. Soon claimed that when she asked Latasha if she was going to pay for the bottle of orange juice, Latasha asked, what orange juice? This entire incident is explained differently by two other patrons in the store at the time, nine-year-old Ishmael Lee and his 13-year-old sister, Lakeisha Combs. The child witnesses state that Latasha did put the bottle of OJ in her backpack, but approached the register with cash in hand ready to purchase the beverage. They also disputed Soon's claim that when asked about the drink, Latasha replied, what orange juice? So first off, when I was reading this story, I was a little surprised that they call this this empire liquor store and i guess every city can be different but in most cities liquor stores are not allowed to sell anything to people under the age of 21. from my recollection you can, you're not even supposed to enter the store if you're under 21 unless you're you know a child with their parent or something like that uh, so this might be called a liquor store but it might be more of some type of a convenience store and they happen to sell liquor as well, and maybe they have to call themselves a liquor store for that reason, or it might be possible this is 1991, maybe those types of ordinances didn't exist, or maybe they just weren't enforced, and since they carried stuff like orange juice and soda and probably some snacks, maybe it was something where uh, juveniles were to frequent the store, because obviously there's the owner soon in the store, and then 15-year-old Natasha, 13-year-old Lakeisha, and 9-year-old Ismail are the three customers in the store. So no one in the store has an adult, and no one is over the age of 15. Latasha's the oldest customer at 15. So 
I did find that a little strange. Now, it was also said, yes, Latasha put the OJ into her backpack, but we're going to find out it's not as if she put it in the backpack, zipped up the backpack, and had other items as she approached the register. It was said that she put it into her backpack, but left the backpack unzipped. So it was clear to see the orange juice bottle was in the backpack. And we're going to know that for sure too, A, because of the video, and B, because it's going to come out during a scuffle here. And uh, it's going to be proven that the Latasha has money in her hand to pay for this. So this whole thing, again, according to Soon, Soon, of course, is building a story for police that is most beneficial to her. But there's going to be evidence that what she's saying is not true. And what was not disputed was what happened next. Soon admitted to grabbing Latasha's backpack and ripping it off of her. Latasha responded by striking Soon twice in the face. The blows knocked Soon to the ground, and Soon stood up and threw a stool at Latasha. This caused Latasha to try and run from the store, and Soon grabbed a revolver from under the counter and shot at the fleeing juvenile, and the bullet struck Latasha in the back of the head, killing her instantly. The loud report of the single gunshot woke Soon's husband, Billy, and he ran into the store to see what had happened. He spoke to Soon, who fainted within seconds, and Billy dialed 911 to report an attempted robbery at the store. LAPD responded to the scene and obtained statements from Soon, Billy, and the two juvenile witnesses. Soon claimed to have acted in self-defense, stating she was scared for her life after being struck twice by Latasha. The eyewitness testimony and video evidence proved that Soon's story did not meet the criteria for a claim of self-defense. Latasha was not armed, was not aggressing on Soon, and was actually running away when she was shot. She had not even committed a crime as her assault on Soon was a result of Soon grabbing her backpack without cause. It's a gray area that would likely see neither of them charged or both of them charged with disorderly conduct at the worst. But regardless, her assault on Soon did not rise to the level of being self-defense when Latasha was shot while trying to run out of the store. And this self-defense, we haven't actually, I don't think, covered any cases that I can recall at this moment, and it's possible I may have missed one or two at this point that I that I did cover, but where self-defense is brought up as a as a defense. And in order for there to be a self-defense claim, the person who's defending themselves has to be able to reasonably explain that had they not resorted to some form of lethal force or causing great bodily harm to the person aggressing on them, then their life could potentially be in danger. And again, we don't have that here. Yes, Latasha punched soon twice. And again, as I said, if I'm the investigating officer on this case and I find out that the store clerk grabbed this 15-year-old girl and ripped her backpack off of her and the 15-year-old punched the store clerk twice, I would flat out tell the store clerk and Latasha, here's the deal, either neither of you are getting charged or both of you getting charged with disorderly conduct because both of you are at fault here, both of you acted in a way that was over the top, was not necessary, soon should not have grabbed the backpack. We're talking a $1.79 bottle of orange juice, and she had the cash in hand to pay for it. Maybe soon didn't see the cash in hand. She was focused on this bottle of orange juice, but still, her actions of grabbing this backpack, just not worth it. And then Latasha punching soon, Again, not the best choice, but she's 15 years old. She's getting accosted by a store owner, and she's done nothing wrong. All she wants to do is buy her orange juice. 
So again, I would say no charges or both can get minor charges for acting out of control about the situation. But this is not a case where Latasha was trying to rob the store. She wasn't even trying to steal from the store. She wasn't flat out aggressing on the store owner for no reason whatsoever. So as I'm reviewing the video, as I'm talking with these witnesses, even as I'm talking with Soon, I'm not seeing anything that rises to the level of self-defense. And Soon was charged with the murder of Latasha Harlins, and the incident had already had a fired up city on the edge. Relations between black residents and the Korean business owners grew worse by the day. On May 25, 1991, two Korean store owners at a different liquor store were shot and killed during a robbery. The suspect was a black male, and it was said that he killed the employees even after they complied with his request for cash from the registers. This incident occurred not too far from the shooting of Latasha and marked an increase in violence and tension between the two groups. So this is what we're seeing is, again, these Korean business owners, they've bought up all of the stores, run the black-owned businesses out of the area. They've got a monopoly on all of these liquor stores, convenience stores, basically where the black community can shop is almost 100% Korean owned at this time. And so there's going to be tensions. And so any time that a crime is committed against these Korean stores, it's often by one of the residents who happens to be black. So that's going to cause issues between the business owners and anybody who is black, which is their, all of their customers and the residents of the area. But it's also going to cause issues with the black community against the Korean store owners. And, and so when you have a crime like this, where it's a robbery with unfortunate overkill of the employees, the fact that it's likely going to be a black suspect and Korean store owners is going to further this division, this tension, this this powder keg that's going on here. And on June 4th, 1991, a black male named Lee Mitchell attempted to buy a wine cooler from a Korean-owned liquor store. The owner, Kumok Park, refused Lee's request to pay 25 cents less for the beverage or barter with Lee paying less but giving the owner some jewelry to offset the price. Lee had enough money to buy the drink, so was unsure why he tried to negotiate a lesser price and barter but the two ended up in a verbal argument over the transaction. At one point, Lee reached into his pocket and acted as if he had a concealed weapon. And as I mentioned before, uh, these Korean-owned businesses, a lot of the times at this point in history, the owners are first-generation immigrants from Korea. They have, in a lot of cases, very limited English or broken English, and so their ability to communicate with their customers isn't the greatest and so you're going to have issues where if a customer comes up and there's some type of a confusion about the payment now in this case it seems really sketchy with this paying 25 cents less especially if he has enough money to buy the wine cooler i i don't really get it but again that could come down to uh in this case not to put too much of a spoiler alert on this but Lee Mitchell is going to be shot and killed, so we don't necessarily, I guess, have Lee's side of the story, so all we're getting is the owners. So again, there's a chance that whatever the owner heard was potentially not this bartering, this paying a lesser price. I, again, 
this is one of those cases where we have to go off what the store owner says. They're saying there's this disagreement about payment. That may or may not be true, but ultimately this argument's gonna turn physical and Lee came behind the counter and assaulted the male store owner who was Tay Sam Park, breaking three of his ribs during the altercation and then Lee attempted to grab cash out of the register. So this is turned from a, a civil disagreement about payment for the single wine cooler to now he's used force and caused injury to somebody else and he's trying to take cash out of the registration. Now this has turned into a robbery and a robbery in which this person has already aggressed and caused significant bodily harm to the store owner. So Lee's gonna grab a, or say Tay Sam's gonna grab a pistol from behind the counter and he shoots Lee five times killing the assailant and robber. So again, we've now escalated from arguing over a quarter in price for this wine cooler and offering some jewelry to offset the quarter even though Lee had enough to pay for it to it's turned into a, a verbal civil disagreement into an armed robbery into a self-defense shooting. And Lee was found to be unarmed and tested positive for cocaine. Despite video evidence of the escalating encounter and the physical evidence of the assault on Taysam, Black residents were upset about the shooting of the unarmed black man and vowed to boycott Korean-owned liquor stores. LAPD declined to pursue charges against Taysam as they felt the evidence showed he acted in self-defense. And this is an issue, I don't blame the black community for being very emotional at this time. You've got the, the terrible killing of Latasha back in March. Uh, you've got escalating violence, escalating lack of trust between the, the store owners in the community. And so sometimes even when an incident occurs like this, where it does seem to be justified that Taysam protected himself and his store using this pistol, the, the result is an unarmed person is killed. And that's just the, the optics of that is terrible when the emotions are already high. So we've just, again, you go march the, the terrible killing of Latasha into a, a double homicide involving Korean store owners into into the shooting of the over this 25 cents for wine cooler that turns into a robbery and then on June 13th two black men tried to rob a Korean owned auto parts store using a shotgun the owner grabbed the gun during the robbery and the suspect pulled the trigger during the struggle and the ensuing gunshot ended up killing the robber's accomplice so again we're just month by month it feels like the the crime is getting out of control but it's in every one of these instances it is black customer korean store owner in the case of latasha you have this unjustified killing of the customer in another case you've got the unjustified killing during the robbery of the the two employees and then you've got this unarmed black male who shot and killed while he's committing this physical robbery and then you've got another robbery this time being perpetrated by the two black men but during the struggle one of them is shot and killed and again it's just again it's this cascade of of cases that are all occurring in spring and summer of 1991 that you can just feel this tension growing and city leaders attempted to quell the building level of crime and violence during the summer of 1991 via community outreach groups and coalitions that included black leaders and Korean business owners. So it's, it's not as if they're blind to what's going on. They understand that there's distrust and 
uh, at this point a lot of anger that's, that's going on between the two communities so they they form this Korean store owner and black community leader coalition that they're supposed to meet up have discuss how they can develop this trust how they can work to to lower the tension between them and you know the Korean business owners they're going to say they're threatened by the uptick in crime and violence against their stores and employees while the black leaders took issue to the fact that the majority of business owners did not live in the neighborhoods and were seen as unfair with prices and their treatment of the black customers so it's not as if these these members of these communities have the means to go shop somewhere else so they are left with having to shop in these korean businesses and so if they're constantly feeling like they're being treated terribly by the only place that they can go to shop they feel like the prices have been set too high these used to be black owned businesses a lot of white owned businesses too but the few black owned businesses that seem to charge an appropriate price were undercut until people stopped shopping there and you could say well that's then they they did that to themselves but when you're impoverished or desperate for money you're going to shop where the prices are cheapest unfortunately the end result of that is these korean store owners getting a monopoly to where they can set the prices wherever they want so ultimately those cheap prices turned into much more expensive prices which which again is not going over well with the black community at this time and adding fuel to the fire was an incident that occurred just 13 days before latasha's killing on March 3, 1991, a black motorist named Rodney King was driving under the influence when LAPD tried to conduct a traffic stop on his vehicle. Rodney was on parole for a robbery charge, and if he was caught breaking the law to include a DWI, he was likely getting sent back to prison. Rather than facing likely prison time, Rodney decided to try and outrun the police and led LAPD on a high-speed pursuit on freeways and into the San Fernando Valley. He eventually stopped in front of some apartments and a rec center as a swarm of police squad cars moved in. Rodney was the third person removed from the car, and police would later say he resisted arrest. They claimed they believed he was high on PCP and was tossing police officers around. This was their rationale for four officers and a supervisor to tase Rodney, strike him repeatedly with batons, stomp on him, and then handcuff him and hogtie him. The assault on Rodney was captured by someone who had heard the commotion of the sirens and grabbed a personal video camera. The man, George Holliday, recorded the 12-minute incident and soon submitted the tape to local media. LAPD got a copy of the tape, and the chief of police vowed for justice against an assault he saw was excessive and unnecessary. Not all the footage was released to the public out of fear of a volatile response from the public but the promise of justice against the officers was enough to hold back the anger expressed by the black community at the time. So again, this is the, the beating of Rodney King occurred uh, it was 13 days, something like that before the death of, of Latasha Harlins. So you've got in that incident, excessive force caught on video used by the LAPD against Rodney, who's black. Then you've got this Korean store owner shooting this 15-year-old black girl, killing her for basically no reason because she was going to pay for her orange juice. And, and then you've got all of these incidents where, in a couple cases, uh, black suspects of crime are being killed at the hands of Korean store owners. You've got at least one case where two Korean store owners are killed by a, a black suspect during a robbery. So 
the black community at this point in LA, they don't trust the LAPD. Uh, they're upset, and, and this is why the full footage of the Rodney King incident wasn't released, because the LAPD feared there would be riots in the street if people saw what actually happened. So they release enough of the tape to say, hey, we're going to look into this. This doesn't look good. This is not how we police, so please just give us the time to investigate this. And, uh, oh, by the way, we we did charge that Korean store owner with murder, so get, let justice work itself out there. Like, these are bad things. We understand that. But at the same time, let justice prevail. Just trust the system is, is what they're telling the black community. And, and the black leaders in the communities are probably saying the same thing, saying, hey, it's not as if they're ignoring what's going on. They're, they're saying there's going to be justice. Let's just wait until there's justice. So the trial of Soon Jadu was seen as another chance for justice. Many, including the police, felt Soon had overreacted and used racial bias in her shooting of 15-year-old Latasha Harlins. During her trial, Soon testified that she felt threatened after Latasha punched her twice and claimed she felt she would, she would die if she was punched a third time. But video evidence during the trial showed that during the struggle over the backpack, the bottle of orange juice that was the genesis of the entire incident fell out and landed on the floor. After Soon took Latasha's backpack and threw the stool at her, Latasha bent down and grabbed the OJ bottle and put it on the counter. She still had the $2 in her hand to pay for the OJ when Soon drew the revolver and shot her in the head as she was running away. So again, we're, during the trial, the jury gets to see the full video. Despite what Soon is claiming, and, and she was obviously told by her defense attorney to claim, hey, if, just tell him if you thought if you got punched a third time you were going to die. You can say that all you want. I don't think there's any evidence of it. And what the video shows is Latasha continuing to try to just pay for the bottle. That's all she wanted to do was pay for this bottle of orange juice. She had the $2 in her hand. She had the orange juice bottle. She wasn't committing any type of crime. Even after the store owner took her backpack, she's still just trying to say, hey, let me just pay for this and leave the store we'll be done with this whole transaction. This is how this thing works. I come in here, I pay you. The only thing that was goofy about the entire thing was that she put the orange juice in her backpack. Again, not zipping it up, not trying to conceal it. Maybe she just wanted her hands free. To, one hand is occupied by the money. She didn't want her other hand occupied by the orange juice. It was gonna go in the bag eventually anyway. Whatever her rationale was for it, yes, it was a little goofy, but there's nothing criminal about what she did and she obviously didn't go in that store asking to be shot for committing no crime whatsoever. So the jury seeing all this, it is not a case of self-defense. This is a case of, in my mind, all day long, it's a second degree murder charge. Did soon hope that a 15 year old person of any color would walk into that store so that she could shoot them in the head that day? No, I don't think soon woke up that day hoping and planning to shoot somebody in the head. I think she overreacted to a situation and then absolutely at, at some point, especially after she was punched, she she clearly lost her mind and decided to shoot this 15-year-old girl and kill her. Uh, again, not a planned murder, so it's not first degree, it's not premeditated, but she still made the active choice to shoot a girl in the head. A crime of passion, a crime of temporary mental illness, whatever you want to call it. It's a second degree murder all day long. 
and the prosecuting attorneys had sought a first-degree murder charge, but the judge told the jury that they could apply a lesser murder charge to the crime all the way down to manslaughter. Most people, like I did, assumed Soon would be convicted of second-degree murder as elements of premeditation did not exist. But on November 15th, roughly eight months to the day after the deadly incident, the jury found Soon guilty of only voluntary manslaughter. So, so again, they look at it and say, okay, she just committed an act that out of complete and utter gross negligence caused the death of somebody else. That doesn't really apply. That would be if I did something that was really, really stupid and then that resulted in somebody dying and I probably should have seen that doing something stupid or making a mistake, grabbing a taser, thinking that it's a, a handgun and shooting that person with it. Maybe that meets manslaughter because I, I didn't intend to kill the person. It all comes down to intent. First degree murder is premeditation and intent. Second degree murder, lose the premeditation, but the intent is still there. Soon grabbed a revolver. She pointed it at the girl's head. She pulled the trigger. She intended to kill her. She should have been convicted of second degree murder. But still, there's a chance for justice here because even voluntary manslaughter carries a possible sentence of 16 years in prison. But the judge, a woman named Joyce Carlin, sent further shockwaves into the community when she sentenced Soon to no prison time, five years of probation, with 10 years of her sentence suspended, 400 hours of community service, and a $500 fine, and ordered Soon to pay for Latasha's funeral costs. The outrageously low sentence was justified, according to the judge, because Soon was under extreme provocation at the time of the crime, and it was unlikely that she would reoffend. And yes, judges are given discretion. They're allowed to look at sentencing guidelines, look at somebody's criminal history, look at all the factors of the crime that the person is convicted of, and then they're allowed to render a sentence within reason. And in this case, most people thought she'd probably do something like five years in prison, at the very, very least, like two years in prison. And so when she gets no prison time and the judge basically says, well, she was provoked, so she doesn't get any prison time and she's going to have to live with this the rest of her life, obviously many people found that outrageous. And as this outrage grew, pro prosecutors immediately appealed the lenient sentence. Again, they promised the black community that justice would be served and to trust in the system. That trust was broken once again when a state appeals court voted 3-0 to zero to uphold the lenient sentence, ending almost all chance that any justice would be served for the senseless and preventable killing of a promising young woman. The date of the appeals decision was April 21, 1992, and it occurred just one day before the jury in the trial against the LAPD officers involved in the Rodney King incident was set to deliberate their fate. So, so again, you have the, the black community... They've been told there's going to be justice for Latasha. Ultimately, around April 21st, 1992, the end of their wait for justice ends in, in no justice in their mind. Then they're told, hey, yes, this beating of Rodney King looks terrible, but trust there's justice. These officers will be held accountable. They are going to be charged criminally. Let the trial go. Let the justice work its way through the system in this trial as well. Well, we now have the powder keg that was LA, we have the powder that was poured, the fuse that had been set, and all that was needed was a spark. On an April 29th, that spark came when the jury in the Rodney King case returned a verdict of not guilty against the police officers involved in the beating of the black motorist. 
The explosion was large and immediate with riots breaking out all over the city of Los Angeles. While targeting the LA Police Department was both difficult and dangerous, the rioters instead focused most of their angst on Korean-owned businesses. Despite expecting some form of response after the verdict and setting aside a large sum of money to pay police overtime, the LAPD continued to make bad decisions and even sent two-thirds of their patrol captains to an out-of-town training during the deliberations. And so, again, we're seeing if the police department had their finger on the pulse of the situation at all at this point, between the the appeal for the lenient sentence against the, the Korean store owner soon and the fact that there's a chance that these officers might be acquitted, if, if you know that those two things are going on at the same time, you have to be prepared for this absolute angry response by the black community and you, you basically, you send two-thirds of your patrol captains, the guys that are in charge, you know, the, the best in charge, the guys that have the best pulse of what's going on within their, the areas that their guys patrol, you send them out of town for a training. And even, on, even with that going on, the judge had delayed the reading of the verdict by two hours to give LAPD time to prepare staffing and implement an emergency plan. But the department chose only to open its emergency operations center and wait to see what happened. The verdict was read shortly after shift change, and no attempt had been made to keep day shift officers on the clock in case things went bad. And this is something to me that's just inexcusable. When you have officers, this was, I think their shift change was 3 o'clock and the verdict is read a little after 4 o'clock. You've got officers on duty, you've got this money set aside for overtime, the worst case scenario is that the verdict's read there's a couple small riots or uprisings whatever you want to call them you have the extra police power the police presence because you held over your day shift for a few hours to go put out those fires go arrest agitators go shut down riots if you need to whatever you need to do but three o'clock rolls around and you just tell these these officers hey guys and gals go home your shift is done we'll call you in if we need you it just to me it was poor planning all around they didn't have any idea how angry the black community was and have any idea of how bad things could go if the verdict is going to go the way it's going to go and the verdict was that all four officers or five i can't remember how it was read but it was basically all officers involved in the rodney king incident were found not guilty of the crimes so things went bad, they went very bad. Protesters took to the streets and began rushing stores, stealing items and smashing windows. Responding officers were quickly overwhelmed by large crowds and were forced to retreat away from the crimes in progress. Temporary command posts were set up in hotspot areas, but poor staffing and lack of pre-planning meant there were few officers and fewer phone lines or lines of communication to coordinate response. So like in some cases there was I don't know if it was a publicly owned bus line, but they, they, some of the riots were really close to this large bus center, so they took over the bus center as a command operation, but the bus center wasn't set up to receive a ton of incoming phone calls. The I'm guessing there's certain buildings that radios don't work well in, just the way they're designed, and it's very possible that they had communication issues as a result of this. Plus, they just don't have the, the staff. They sent home a giant uh, amount of officers from the day shift at three o'clock so and what people don't understand is when you have 
an incident like this or any terrorist attack or mass shooting or whatever it might be, police departments don't staff for these emergency situations. They should have in this case, they knew this was coming, but in the cases of like a mass shooting or a terrorist attack, they're not gonna know this is coming. The staff that's working at any given time is usually the minimum amount of staff you need just under normal conditions. So you still have all your medical emergencies, your regular crimes, your traffic accidents, all the stuff that is gonna, go, that goes on on the days just like this. So the difference is instead of having just enough officers to barely cover those crimes, now you have major, major crimes in progress and you still don't have the officers. So again, the, the, the lack of pre-planning, the lack of, of having officers on standby when the verdict was going to be read means that the few officers that are out there trying to keep the peace, they, they, they can't compete, they can't staff these command centers quickly enough. And so the crowds effectively took over blocks of territory and commanders were ordered not to send officers to those areas, which effectively created lawless zones within the city. And anyone of non-black ethnicity was attacked and beaten and in some cases killed. Several different white truck drivers in the area were surrounded by the crowds and pulled from their trucks and beaten in the roadway. Several of these attacks were caught on camera and would result in future criminal charges, but many of the victims received permanent injuries from the assaults. While many members of the black community committed terrible acts of violence that day, there were many brave members who stood against the violence. A Guatemalan immigrant named Fidel Lopez was pulled from his truck and robbed of $2,000 cash. The rioters beat him with his own car stereo, tried to slice off one of his ears, and spray-painted his chest and genitals with black spray paint. A black reverend named Bernie Newton stepped in during the assault and stopped the attackers. He told them if they killed Fidel, they'd have to kill him too. Bernie's actions saved Fidel's life, although he also suffered permanent injuries. It was reported that the two became lifelong friends after the incident. As night fell on the city, fire started to blaze in businesses within the rioting areas. News agencies were airing live coverage of the riots, and people could see there was no police response, and this emboldened more people to take to the streets and commit crimes. The area of Koreatown was one of the main targets of the rioters. Residents would later say that LAPD invested a lot of resources to block rioters from entering areas of the city occupied by rich white residents such as Beverly Hills and West Hollywood, but their blockades effectively kept the rioters in Koreatown where they were looting and burning stores. So LAPD does not have good optics at this point. Their, their PR is beyond in the tank. And whether they, they just say, hey, it is what it is at this point, our PR already stinks, but it obviously doesn't create a great image if you've got the few officers that you have are, are basically blockading the streets into the rich areas of LA to prevent rioters from getting in there. And meanwhile, you have these lawless zones that no police are going into, no help is coming. And, and there's plenty of Korean business owners that would say that afterwards saying they, they knew no help was coming from the police that they were on their own so this caused many korean store owners to take to defending their stores by forming rooftop security teams armed with handguns and rifles to deter the armed looters there were several instances of shootouts between store owners and their security teams and groups of armed looters the riots raged for four days and caused over 
$1 billion in damages, the equivalent of over $2.2 billion today. The human death toll over the four days was 63 people killed and over 2,300 injured. By the end of the riots, police and members of the National Guard had made 12,000 arrests. The chief of LAPD, Daryl Gates, resigned in disgrace for his department's role in the lead-up to and reaction to the riots. While hindsight is 2020, the riots were the result of built-up tension from years of abusive policing and racial tension that were just waiting for the right spark. Most historians believe that spark was the untimely and unjust trials of Latasha Harlan's killer and the officers responsible for the Rodney King beating. I would like to say America learned from this incident, but after the Ferguson riots of 2016 and the Minneapolis riots of 2020, I can't say that with any amount of honesty. Sadly, lost in all the violence and destruction of the 1992 LA riots were the victims of the crimes that led to the chaos. On March 16, 1991, 15-year-old Latasha Harlins lost her life over a bottle of orange juice that she intended to pay for. While we can't say the riots wouldn't have happened anyway, we can say the world would have been a better place if a girl like Latasha Harlins had the chance for a full life. But that is the story of Latasha Harlins. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.